So thank you very much, everyone, for being here today and uh, coming to this container, container session. Um, I'm a little emotional because uh, I'm, we, Will and I are very honored for you to uh, skip on other activities such as drinks and other forms of entertainment <laughs> just to s stay with us tonight. Um, okay, so this is, uh, we're going to try to make it up to you with a little bit of something that is worth it. Uh, so, so this is a 400-level session. Uh, we're going to try to get as advanced as possible and, and give you a good idea of uh, how, to, um, how to use, basically, uh, ECS, uh, Elastic Container Service, in, um, in production. Uh, there's going to be some theory, and there's going to be some real-life experience. We're going to uh, go briefly about uh, the microservices architecture. We're going to talk about uh, Amazon ECS, why it fits in the picture. Uh, we're going to mention the 12-factor app, and then we're going to go through a bunch of reference architectures, um, pieces of uh, technology that can help you solve problems that you might be facing or you might have faced already. Uh, then we're going to talk about task placement as well, because it's, a, it's an important part of Elastic Container Service. And, uh, and then I'll, I'll leave the stage to Will, who's going to talk about how BuzzFeed did it. My name is Pierre Steckmeyer. I'm a solutions architect for Amazon Web Services. I've been doing this for three years and a half. My subject matter expertise is in containers, um, uh, surprisingly. And uh, I, I, let's go into it right now. So microservices have been uh, the talk of the town for a long time now. Uh, you can find a definition for microservices on many sites, including the Wikipedia. This definition here is the one that we wrote in a, in a white paper. Um, it mentions uh, the fact that it is both architectural and organizational as an approach. Uh, that it is, uh, it, it emphasizes on being small and independent service. Uh, and we will dig a little bit into this as well. And all of these services are going to talk to each other via well-defined application program interfaces. And then uh, small and self-contained teams, right? both organizational and architectural. So there was a, a talk by Sam Newman, uh, CON208. How many of you attended this talk? Uh, wonderful. So I, I hope that you enjoyed it. And for the ones that didn't get a chance to attend it, it's going to be available via video very soon. And so uh, I would recommend you watch it. And please download that white paper also. There might be a little bit to learn in there. So what we're doing is we're trying to uh, assemble some of the best practices, uh, both from uh, the, some of the, the, the principles um, that were established around microservices, uh, as well as the 12-factor app. So we used to build monolithic applications. Uh, what monolith stands for in terms of uh, actual terminology is a single large unit. Right? So in a monolithic application, uh, all the components are tightly coupled, and they're usually hard to change. It made sense at the time to build these monoliths and try to pack all the functionality within one binary or one big application. Uh, but it's... Um, I think a lot of organizations have outgrown this, uh, this method. Uh, the microservices, in comparison, are uh, a very small atomic unit, where, and they do one thing, they do it well. 
And, and as I said, they have a clear interface, they have a contract with the world, and this is the only way that you should be interfacing with these services. So why are we seeing companies and organizations move away from the monolith and into microservices? I, there are many reasons. Um, I, I will highlight two um, mostly. So the, the first one is scaling. Um, because when you have to make your applications more, um, uh, more performant and to be able to serve a larger load or bigger traffic, uh, when it comes to a monolith, you'll have to just replicate it. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, an easy solution, but it's not the most uh, appropriate when it comes to resource utilization because parts of the monolith uh, might be the ones that actually need more performance or more scale, but other parts might not need it. And so you're basically uh, using a bigger box for uh, something to contain that is not as, uh, not, not as uh, needed, not, not as big. So scaling is not as efficient. Now, change is another reason, right? Because when you want to iterate on a monolith, uh, there's a certain amount of friction that happens. So a large application is usually maintained by uh, teams of developers. Uh, one, um, one point of friction is that when you want to use a shared library or a, a certain library, you know, the developer might have to put on a, a, a salesperson hat and go around the teams and say, hey, I, want, I really want to use this library and this new version of this library, and it would make sense to all of us. Like, will you adopt it? Will, will you start using it as well? Um, and then there's also the, the concept of merging. So merging all the code that all the teams have written uh, during a certain length of, length of time. It could be a merge day uh, or a merge week. I, I've been in, uh, in an organization that had a merge week. All the engineers come together and they try to uh, have all this code be compatible with each other and, and remove any conflicts. Um, and then once you've merged, you need to build the application and then deploy it into a test environment and then run some regressions testing about uh, on it. Right? Anything that fails comes back to the, to the, to the monolith. You have to write your code again. You have to fix what's, what's missing, and then it goes back all the way to all the testing, and then it redeploys again, uh, and that's for the whole application. And so microservices offer a solution to this. Um, Amazon.com went through this journey. We had a gigabyte-sized web, ser uh, web service, which was, Amazon, which was serving Amazon.com, and we had a full team that was uh, entirely dedicated to deploying this, uh, this binary. And so we, we, we embraced the model of microservices. It was actually, it was not called microservices back then. And we identified a few characteristics that make for a successful journey. And, and here they are in front of you. I'm going to try to quickly uh, identify them or, or explain some of them. So let's start with do one thing well. Uh, you want your application, you want your microservice to uh, embed some of the, func the business functions, mirror the, the business functions, but, um, but only the ones that make sense to the function and not more. Uh, so it's, it's, a, uh, it's a tricky uh, challenge to do. There's a whole book uh, that's uh, a good inspiration on the subject, which is uh, domain-driven design. It's going to be very helpful identifying where the boundary is between what you should embed as a functionality within the microservice and what you shouldn't. But most of the time, your microservice is going to be a, uh, a replica of a real-life function. 
I'm going to go clockwise. So you build it, you run it. There's this concept of uh, a whole team owning the service, uh, kind of soup to nuts, from the, uh, from the development all the way to production. So you have developers carrying a pager and potentially being paying that 3M because uh, the, the software is not running in production. So we're seeing two benefits come out of this. Um, the first one is the developers are usually more, they have more ownership and they also have more satisfaction in their job uh, because they're able to actually interact directly with the customers and, and see their, their baby uh, operate in production. And the second benefit is code quality increases. Um, and then the next, uh, next, next one is black box, so kind of a, an ominous title here, but the, the real idea behind the black box is each microservice is a black box to the others. And so um, there's a real benefit to this, which is removing coupling. Because if, if, if you're too open, if you let other services interact with components of your microservice, you're going to increase coupling. So you, you might be tempted to open your data layer as a microservice, open your data layer to other services, but when you do this, you are now slowed down when you want to update your data layer or your schema. Uh, you're going to have to uh, agree with all the teams that you're servicing that you're doing this. Whereas if you instead offer a one-stop one shop API point with which to interact, you can do whatever you want behind this. You own a black box and other services are a black box. Okay, and then, so services are also independent, decentralized, um, the independence uh, goes, uh, the independence and the decentralization comes to uh, the decision making and uh, the, the idea that uh, all these teams are empowered to make the choices that they want and uh, I, I, I'll skip on them for now because I'm, I'm also uh, uh, mindful of time uh, and I want to make sure Will has, uh, Will has time um, and we want to try to uh, take some time for questions. Now, the, the, port, the part about Polyglot is being able to speak uh, any technology. So as a microservice, you own the technology um, uh, and the technology choices. So if you want to use, uh, if you want to change from a, a relational database into uh, instead, you be, you'd better use a key value store, then you know, it's, it's your choice and, and you, uh, you're free to, to, to do them. Um, so we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, Actually, cool things come out of this model. Uh, if you're familiar with uh, Netflix's uh, open source tools, uh, such as the Simeon Army or, or the Chaos Monkey, so these tools come out of teams that are empowered to do what they, what, what they want, what, what they need for their business, and then uh, not all the teams have to reinvent the wheel. Right. So one team will potentially come up with a tool that um, actually has to, um, th th that they need for their own service and, and by uh, liberating it and, and giving it to other teams within the company or even open sourcing it, they, they get a lot of traction out of this. Okay, so this was, uh, this was some of the key components for, micro, for uh, successful microservices. Um, Amazon ECS fits into the picture uh, because it is a high-performance platform for running Docker containers uh, on, on a fleet of EC2 instances. And it is fully managed. And you don't, have to, uh, you, you don't have to stand up a whole new container management system. You don't have to scale it, make sure that it's secure. 
um, uh, etc. All of this is done for you. It also features shared state optimistic scheduling. And this, is, this sounds really good. And all it means is that you can run many schedulers on the cluster at the same time. And this offers a lot of freedom. And ECS um, integrates with a lot of other AWS uh, services, such as Amazon CloudWatch for monitoring and logging. Uh, for example, your containers can be uh, given a, a Docker log, a Docker log driver, which is AWS logs. And so your, uh, your standard output is going to go straight into CloudWatch logs. You can then search on it. You can, you can put al alerts on it. It's very handful. Um, and then uh, helpful, sorry. And then it also integrates with CodeStar. All right, I got to pick up the pace a little bit. So we are seeing uh, a bunch of use cases on ECS. Um, Will is going to talk about a third one. You can see two on the screen right here. So the first one is batch jobs, because you have this large uh, surface uh, of, of compute that is ready for, uh, for sending jobs to it. And each task can run as a container or a set of containers. And then when it's done, it disappears, leave the resources for another job. And you can easily scale your cluster to make, to make room for a bigger, bigger batch or size it down. And of course, long-running apps, right? Like long-running microservices, for example, uh, you have the benefit of uh, health management. If a task uh, was to fail, then it, another one is going to be started for you. Uh, you can easily scale out and scale in according to, uh, according to two dimensions, which I'll explain. And uh, the service is AZ-aware. So you, you're going to have out-of-the-box high availability for your service, uh, availability zones. Okay, so who in this room is familiar with the 12-factor app? Okay, this is really good, and uh, it's not half of the room, though. Uh, I would really recommend that uh, you, you, you go to 12factor.net, yes, and, uh, and, and read on these. They're very easy to read. Each principle is less than a page long, and they make a lot of sense. Uh, some, some of these, like I'll, I'll give some of examples, like for example, uh, processes is one of them, and it stipulates execute the app as one or more stateless processes. Uh, so stateless kind of makes sense for containers, right? Uh, another one is dependencies, explicitly declare and isolate dependencies. Um, so throughout the, task, the, the reference architectures that I'm going to uh, show to you today, there's going to be icons, and these icons will reference the 12-factor app. So let's go with the first one. And the first one is automatic scaling, because uh, in the cloud, you really don't want to have to worry about whether you're servicing 10 users or 10,000 or 10 million. Right? And so you, you want to be able to scale, and, and when you're done using the resources, you just scale back. Um, so we at ECS, we like to recommend that you scale across two dimensions. The first dimension is at the app level. Your service, how many tasks are in a service? And, and this you can easily uh, peg against a metric like latency um, or queue depth. And then uh, the other dimension for scaling will be the cluster itself. How many instances are uh, the host of these containers? And, and this you can peg against a metric that is more cluster-related, such as memory reservation or CPU reservation. So 
in, in AWS, uh, you're probably familiar with something called EC2 roles or um, IAM roles. It is a, uh, a, a, an, a, an easy way to delegate permissions to a compute resource without having to pass uh, API keys or, uh, sorry, access keys or, um, or username and passwords. And uh, because we consider containers to be just another compute primitive uh, within AWS, uh, equal on the same level as EC2 or Lambda functions, uh, you can now give IAM roles to your tasks. And what this means is that on the same EC2 instance, you can have a task that is allowed to read from S3 and uh, not do anything else. And, on, and, and you could also have a task that is able to write to DynamoDB, but not be allowed to do anything else. So it's, it's very powerful, and it enables a lot of security right away. Speaking about sharing passwords, uh, it, it, it could be that at some point you will want to delegate um, credentials to log into a database to some of your applications. Right? And, the way to do this, uh, it's been a, a problem that uh, people em embracing services and microservices have had for a while, and so there are solutions out there. But here's a solution that um, uses nothing but Amazon primitives. And the way that it works is that the password that you're going to pass to your service is going to be encrypted with an, a KMS key. And you um, give the task an IAM role, and the role says you can use this key to decrypt, and that's it. So basically, as the task comes up and it needs to access the database password, it's going to make a request for this variable and it's going to be decrypted because you, get access, you have access to the key. And sorry, and this uses uh, EC2 Systems Manager. Continuous deployment uh, is obviously top of mind for a lot of developers. Uh, the ability to go from committing code and pushing it all the way to having your code running in production, why not, or in another environment without touching anything. And so you can do this with, uh, you can do this all in on AWS. Um, you don't have to, but you could, you could send your code to code commit or even uh, another code repository. And then through either a, a webhook or uh, a notification, you would have a code pipeline trigger a deployment. And so code pipeline is going to start by sending uh, a message to code build so that code build can start compiling, right, and, and, and putting together your application inside a container image and push this Docker image to Amazon, EC2, to Amazon uh, Elastic Container Registry. And then uh, once this is done, you will have a code pipeline trigger a CloudFormation template, um, a stack update, which is going to update the service uh, to ECS. And, um, and your service can run on spot instances, with, uh, like a spot fleet, for example, which behave exactly like a, an auto-scaling group, but you can pay for it at a 50 to 90% discount. And um, the reason why we're using CloudFormation here is because it has an embedded, it has a rollback function, which can be very useful. All right, let's do blue-green deployment. So blue-green deployment is uh, also um, a very popular way of upgrading a, a service. And, and the reason is because you just stand up a very, like a, a mirror of the, of the application along with the infrastructure, and then you just redirect traffic. Uh, it's just running a different version of the code. 
Um, so in this case, uh, what we're doing here is we're doing the switch at the DNS level. We're using weighted round robin in Route 53 to send some of the traffic at first to the first load balancer, and then we switch it to another load balancer. But you could also do this with, uh, so, so the previous solution applies uh, very well to classic load balancer. But with application load balancer and network load balancer, you can actually do the switch at the uh, target group level. So um, you gotta be very careful, you gotta, you gotta pay attention. These two groups are going to switch, there you go. And all you do, the way you do this is just an API call. Um, so that was a way to do a, a blue-green. Service discovery. What is the problem? The problem is that um, microservices have a, an average life expectancy that is very restricted. So we used to have bare, bare metal machines, right, with probably uh, life expectancy of months or even years, and then virtual machines, life expectancy of weeks to months, maybe weeks. And then average life expectancy for containers is actually days. Uh, and so, how do they find each other if they're changing all the time? Knowing, knowing each other's IP is, uh, is, is, is critical, or at least a, a, a name. And so, here's a DIY way of doing service discovery using, again, uh, Amazon primitives. And so you'll have, um, we're using CloudWatch, uh, we're using uh, the, uh, the event stream that comes out of ECS. Uh, there's no, no polling required, instead you just subscribe. And as events are trickling down, you can pipe them into CloudWatch events and take action on it. And so one action could be, oh, here's a new service that just got started. Um, get the, uh, the, the point of entry for these services and then uh, and add them to Route 53 uh, internally hosted zone as a, as a DNS record. But this works both ways, right? If a service gets deleted, you can also remove uh, remove the rows, remove the records. But you don't have to do this anymore um, because uh, very soon and uh, announced, uh, I think it's been announced, I hope it's been announced because otherwise you're uh, <laughs> getting a little bit, so shh, don't tell anyone. Um, more details on this at CON uh, 4.03 on Friday at 10 a.m. where Shuba is going to go into details as to how this applies to containers, but basically, uh, Route 53 is going to support service discovery. Uh, it's, going to be, uh, it's going to be available later, uh, maybe, uh, maybe, in, uh, maybe in Q1, I believe. Uh, and so basically, you'll just have to tick a box in ECS when you create a service, and uh, the record is going to be maintained by Route 53. So you won't, you won't have to do anything. Uh, I, I won't talk to more about this. I'll, I'll leave the interested parties to uh, go to the session. Okay. How is Nginx an advanced concept? Well, you know, I think it deserves to be mentioned because um, it is extremely powerful. This is, you know, kind of the Swiss Army knife uh, in, in the whole microservices world. Uh, I, I put a little URL there to point you to the, the blog post about it. All of these reference architectures are available either as a blog post or a GitHub repo. So feel free to go and, and Google, Google them. The idea here to use Nginx is because uh, you, you'll get uh, both performance and uh, security out of it, out just right out of the box. So you could have an application server that is barely web-friendly and turn it into an API, uh, an API server. 
And uh, so Nginx offers uh, security because uh, if you open this to the world, if you open your servers to the world, you're going to see all kinds of requests coming your way. Uh, tools like uh, ZMU that allow, that allow to scan for vulnerabilities. You know, there's no reason why this should go all the way to your application server. You can very much filter it right in front of it with an Nginx. And then uh, Nginx has some really cool features like uh, Gzip. You know, you, you, can, you can save a lot of time by, by compressing the size of the packets that you send back and forth. And you can also do custom high-resolution metrics. So this is a blog post that uh, appeared recently. You, you, you get about one minute uh, resolution out of the box with uh, a lot of our services. And uh, with this one, you can get up to the second um, granularity on your metrics. And uh, the, the way this works is uh, you have a CloudWatch events clock that triggers uh, step functions. And the step functions are going to query ECS state and insert into CloudWatch. All right, these were the reference architectures. Now we're going to go into task placement examples. And I'm going to go rather quickly into it, but I just want you to get the point of what you can do with task placement. It is, it is quite powerful. So the, the most basic example is that you can indicate that you want your tasks to land on a certain type of instance, right? So let's say you have a, a workload that needs to be on GPU, but you have a heterogeneous cluster. You just indicate that you want them to land on G2. Uh, but you could also say that you want your containers or your task to go into a certain, um, into a certain type but not a certain availability zone or and a certain availability zone, right? So you can target this way. Slightly more advanced is you can spread across zone and then bin pack. So this is best of both worlds because you get the high availability of having your workload straddle availability zones, but neighbor as much as possible on the same instance so that you use as few instances as possible. Then you've got affinity and anti-affinity. So you can indicate that, oh, my web servers should be uh, neighbors of each other. But, or you could say something like, there should be no task that is a neighbor of my database, for example. So you can do this at runtime when you start a task, or you can just embed it within your service definition so that it always applies. And that's all uh, for me. I'm going to leave you with Will. And uh, I might come back on stage for a few questions if we have time. Thank you, Peter. Um, hi, I'm Will McCutcheon. I'm on the platform infrastructure team at BuzzFeed. So what I want to talk about is uh, our experience taking a lot of the best practices, techniques, technologies that Pierre just described uh, and, and building our own platform on top of ECS. Uh, our platform is called RIG. Uh, it's a complete platform for containerized services, but sort of more than that, it's, it's, uh, it's an opinionated end-to-end -end workflow uh, from development all the way through to production. It comes with a handful of core services bundled with it that do you know, automated monitoring of every deployed service and its dependencies, uh, a continuous integration server, um, and, a, and an easy-to-use uh, deploy user interface that, that, that makes it really easy for anybody to safely deploy their services. Um, so just a, a quick update. Rig, we've, we've built Rig. It's been in production about 20 months. Uh, we have 200 or more users. Those users are mostly engineers, but we also have designers, 
product folks using rig to deploy uh, services. You know, in, in the time it's been in production, we're well over 50,000 deploys. Uh, as you can see on the graph, the, you know, the, the, the rate of deploys is increasing. For the last month or so, we're averaging about 180 deploys a day um, to, to 400 different services running in production, uh, six ECS clusters across two AWS regions. That's powered by you know, 80 to 100 EC2 instances, depending on the state of our auto-scaling groups and demand. Um, and, and so uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about how we got to the point where we wanted to build Rig. Um, we started, like, like many people start, with a monolith. You know, back in 2006, BuzzFeed was founded. There was a small engineering team that built a web application that powered buzzfeed.com. Um, you know, as Pierre mentioned, like, that's, that's the right way to start. You know, you have a small team working on a small, a small project, a monolith or a single application is, is certainly the quickest way to get to, get to market get in front of users. Um, but, you know, over the next 10 years, the monolith doesn't scale very well uh, in, terms of, in terms of, you know, it grows in, com in, in, in functionality and complication. You also, your engineering team grows. So suddenly you have a whole lot of people trying to contribute code to the sprawling code base. And you get to the point where, as Pierre mentioned, you have, uh, you know, merge days. For us, it was, you know, the, the, the size and scope of releases of this monolithic application uh, grew to the point where, um, we, you know, we, we, we had dedicated release managers whose job was to spend an entire day, in some cases, in the best case, an entire day getting a deploy out of production. Uh, in the worst cases, a deploy, you know, would take upwards of a week to get all the way out of production, fully validated, tested, and working correctly. Um, so, so, you know, this obviously slowed down the rate at which we could actually work on our projects. And at the same time, BuzzFeed, you know, sort of, its scope expanded beyond buzzfeed.com, and, and the organizational structure we adopted also changed. And, and so, again, like, like many of y'all are probably doing, we, we decided the answer to these problems is we'll adopt a service-oriented architecture. So we reorganized around small, uh, self-sufficient product engineering teams, uh, each working on independent services, uh, sort of breaking things out from the monolith, new services were being written. And, and sort of the initial results you can, you can see here. We, we, we sort of got ahead of ourselves. And, and our reorganization in terms of people vastly outpaced our technological sophistication and operational processes uh, for actually managing some of this complication. Uh, and, and we were at the point where we had you know, many teams building many different services, but the road to production was arduous. You know, you had to navigate a variety of JIRA ticket queues. You had to have uh, our overworked ops team manually provisioning uh, EC2 instances and, and, and databases and, you know, uh, S3 buckets and security groups and stuff. Uh, the ops team and the, and the product engineering teams both had to, to wrestle with not one but two heavyweight config management systems in Chef and Ansible. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of fun. Um, and, and really what, you know, ultimately, it took weeks for, for any new project to get from, you know, from, from development out into production. And, and that, you know, that, that obviously slowed us down a lot. Uh, and, and even worse than the lack of, like, the, the pain of provisioning new services probably was the lack of consistency that grew out of this. We had many different independent teams working uh, sort of, again, independently, which is great, but we had, you know, each team pick their own development environment. Each team would have a slightly different way to deploy their services, each team had a slightly different way to, to have access to like their logs and instrumentation and production and, and help debug production issues. Uh, and, and it meant that the operations team sort of had to relearn each new service every time something went wrong. Um, 
So a few of us in infrastructure sat down during a hack week and, and built RIG as a proof of concept, our attempt to sort of solve some of these problems. Um, and, and I'll talk through some of the things we learned in the process of building it. I think this applies uh, sort of to anybody who's considering going down this road with, with any, you know, any, any sizable engineering team. Um, but, but you know, our, our first guiding principle was really a focus on the engineering experience. Uh, we wanted to make it, you know, minimize the number of times in the course of working on a service you want to throw your laptop out the window. Um, and so that, that was our real focus. We wanted to make our uh, development and deployment workflows as frictionless as possible. Uh, there's nothing too shocking about this. This is sort of the rig workflow. Um, but but I'll, I'll sort of talk through some of the, some of the slightly interesting parts of it. Uh, you know, first of all, all rig services are in a single monolithic Git repo, uh, which is maybe a controversial decision, but uh, especially, you know, when, when you're talking about it, you know, I showed you have, we have 400 services in production, 200 developers working on them. That's, that's a lot of people in one, and a lot of people in one code in, in one repo. Um, but we think that the benefits in terms of, of consistency and, and discoverability and, and visibility uh, really, really outweigh the downsides in a modern repo. So, um, you know, we have our developer. She's going to work on a, on a new feature in, in, for, for a service. So she's down a rig dev, dev VM which is just a vagrant box. Everybody's using the exact same dev VM across the company. Uh, you know, she, so she cuts a branch, she starts hacking at her dev VM. She runs the, the rig command line tooling that we provide, rig run to run her service locally, interact with it, rig test to run her unit tests, integration tests, whatever test she has. When she's satisfied with it, she pushes it up to GitHub, opens a pull request. GitHub sends a webhook to Builder, which is rig's built-in continuous integration service that's also running on rig. Um, builder receives the, the commit, looks at what's changed, you know, does its job, builds containers, tests them, pushes them up to our ECR registries. Uh, at that point, uh, our developer can deploy her service. So she goes to our deploy user interface, and you know, she only has to make three simple choices, service, version, and target cluster. Uh, and, and, and this sort of consistency, you know, everybody at the company is going through the same process, even those of us on the infrastructure team. And, and, and it's important to note the same process applies whether you're talking about a, a change to an existing service or a brand new service that doesn't exist yet, uh, which, which means we can reduce that time down from weeks to get a new service out to production, literally to minutes, from, from pushing your code to GitHub to, to having it available to deploy to rig actually setting it up and running uh, in production. And, and that, you know, that makes a big deal in, in terms of how fast our teams can move and, and iterate on their projects. Uh, the next big thing that we learned, we, we decided, you know, uh, our, our next big focus was on sort of operational simplicity and consistency. And to that end, we sort of developed these sort of abstractions. A rig service is, is made of a collection of things. The, the first thing is this service definition that defines uh, sort of a, 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 you know, the structure, like the, the attributes of a service in terms of how many instances we're running, uh, whether it's exposing a, a, a network interface, uh, its resource requirements, and importantly, uh, who's responsible for, this, for the service, which, which gets back to, you know, you build it, you run it, like Pierre was talking about. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, picked, we picked this and this, and this way, this sort of runtime agnostic way to configure a service in this config, configuration file, um, again, as a way, instead of asking people to write individual, uh, you know, ECS task definitions or Docker compose files, this sort of higher-level abstraction gives us a lot of leverage as operators of this, of this platform uh, to both 
constrain the features we support and, and really like dial in on what we know we need to support and make, make services more consistent across the board. Uh, and also gives us leverage to, to sort of sub out implementation details as necessary. So, you know, for instance, with the announce of EKS, we could, we could potentially sub out EKS for ECS as our scheduling backend. Um, and, and, and the consistency here also, you know, benefits our developers. A developer can move from one service to another to another, and, and every service is going to have the same basic structure. You know if you've worked on a rig service and you jump into another one exactly where everything is. You know how to see if it's, how it's configured. And it allows us, this is what allows us to, to automatically generate uh, solid monitoring configuration for, for every deployed service. Uh, you know, we ship every service's logs uh, directly to PaperTrail. That's, that's the logging provider we use. So if you know the name of a service, you can easily construct a query uh, that, that allows you to see that service's logs. All of this is really handy when, especially when, when things go wrong uh, and you need to jump in and, and potentially debug an unfamiliar service. Uh, and, and a really important thing, this is, this is a lesson that we learned that's probably very obvious to everybody in this room, but what let us go from a, a week-long prototype to, to a, a viable uh, platform running production workloads in, in a matter of just a, a couple of months was, you know, take advantage of all of the, the good stuff that you get from the AWS platform. This is what a rig cluster looks like. There's nothing special or magical here. It's what you would expect. Everything's in a VPC. Uh, we have an auto-scaling group, you know, filled with EC2 instances. Uh, we use, we build uh, immutable AMIs to roll those out to the auto-scaling group. Uh, and, and so, you know, the auto-scaling group provides reliability. If a, if a host fails, it'll make sure it'll bring another one up. But also, it, it provides capacity. Uh, we scale based on uh, uh, reservation, CPU memory reservation, like Pierre mentioned. So the, the, the clusters themselves will expand and contract in terms of, on, uh, in terms of demand. Uh, the, e the ECS services themselves also can scale based on uh, CloudWatch metrics. So like Pierre mentioned, uh, the number of tasks an individual service can run will expand and contract uh, sort of automatically. Um, we get all of that from, from, from AWS. Uh, and, and maybe the most important thing is we kind of punted on service discovery. We took the, the dumbest possible approach, which is uh, every service that exposes uh, a network interface gets a load balancer and a Route 53 DNS entry that's a deterministic, uh, which, which is not as sophisticated as some of the techniques Pierre was describing, but, but is, is really effective and simple. And, and you get really a lot out of, out of the, the deep integration that ECS has with load balancers, uh, where, where out of the box you automatically get uh, service level health checks uh, that, that'll tie into the ECS scheduler, where it'll reschedule the service that starts failing its health checks. Uh, and, and importantly, you get uh, safe rolling deploys without doing any additional work on your own. Um, so, so, you know, th this is maybe an obvious lesson, but this is, you know, a, a big deal. Um, and the last, the last big lesson we learned is to make everything as self-service as possible. Uh, you know, we, we were excited to get this out, get this in the hands of our users, all the other engineers at BuzzFeed. They loved it, so they started building a lot of services. And, and you know, the first thing we built was obviously a deploy UI to make it easy for everybody to deploy their services safely. What you realize then is, is as, you, as your users start deploying a lot of services, suddenly your operations team is going to spend a lot of its time provisioning the data stores that are backing those services. So the next thing we built was a self-service way for our engineers to deploy data stores, RDS instances, Elasticash clusters. So, so the users are, are, are able to keep moving fast, but we as operators of the cluster uh, maintain a level of control and consistency that we need. 
And the last thing we've built is sort of self-service user onboarding. There's, to, to start using RIG, you need, you need a set of KMS, uh, AWS credentials to grant access to KMS keys. Um, and so we've built a self-service way for people, uh, any, any BuzzFeed developer to log in and manage their own AWS credentials. Um, and so I'll talk through some of the, some of the challenges we faced while, uh, while building uh, RIG. So the first one is network level access control and isolation. Uh, in the good old days, when you're just deploying uh, services on EC2 instances, uh, you, you can take advantage of, you know, isolate your, your applications into separate VPCs, or if not separate VPCs, at least into isolated security groups. So you know only, uh, you know, one application can access the database for that application. There's no chance of, of you know, some rogue application bypassing an API and talking directly to its database. Um, you can't really count on that when you sort of naively jump head, you know, headfirst into ECS, where everything's running on a, on a homogenous set of EC2 instances. It's a flat network namespace. Uh, you have you know, a variety of workloads. And, and on a network level, each, uh, each service can essentially access every other service's data stores, um, which is you know, less than ideal. You're sort of counting on the goodwill of your users to not, to not have everything catch on fire. Uh, our first solution to that was, was pretty naive. It was just to, just to for, for uh, specialized uh, uh, workloads, we would just provision whole entire separate EC, uh, ECS clusters in separate VPCs. So you know, here we have most applications are still running in a, in a generic prod cluster, uh, but, but we have some specialized application with, with a, a critical database isolated into a separate uh, ECS cluster, a separate VPC. Um, this works, but there's some downsides. There's you know, more overhead for operators. We have to manage whole other clusters in the, in the infrastructure that power them. Uh, but, but importantly, it's more of our end users. We don't want necessarily our users to have to care about the, the like, network level details like this. We want them to know that I'm deploying to production, not I'm deploying to this special auth privilege production cluster. Uh, so with the advent of the task placement strategies, uh, that, that allowed us to build a slightly better approach, which is uh, we call it class host group. So within a single ECS cluster, the prod cluster here, you can subdivide the actual EC2 instances into different classes. So we have the de default class where most things are going to be running. Uh, we have a, a workload-based class here, this worker class, uh, where we can put you know, async, like offline or batch applications that can fight amongst themselves for resource usage, and we don't, we don't worry about them too much. Uh, and then we can still have sort of our auth-privileged uh, set of classes isolated with, with isolated access to their, to their uh, data store. Um, we're, we're, to our users, we're still exposing. They're just deploying to production. And, and under the hood, RIG and the ECS scheduler take care of, take care of making sure that the service is deployed to the right place. Um, and the next, the next big challenge we faced was uh, sort of quickly and safely rolling our clusters. I, I showed the diagram earlier where we have, uh, you know, an ECS cluster is um, uh, an auto-scaling group with EC2 instances in it. Our very first approach to, to ro rolling out AMIs, if we, we, we never change a host in place. We never uh, go onto a host and change anything in place or deploy to the host itself. If we have to change something about the host, we build a new AMI and roll it out. Uh, and our first approach to that was, was again, pretty naive and simplistic, uh, which was just to tell the auto-scaling group to spin up one new host, then tear down an existing host, and wait a fixed amount of time, five minutes or something like that, uh, just to give the ECS scheduler time to recognize the host was gone, 
reschedule any task that was running on it onto another host. Um, that works, but you know, as the size of your ECS clusters grows, uh, it becomes extremely painful. You know, it'll start to take hours to actually roll a change out to your clusters. Uh, a, a better approach here is uh, we built a Lambda function that watches the EC2 event stream. So when we trigger, a, like when a new AMI is getting rolled out, uh, the EC2 event stream will fill up with uh, shutdown events for the EC2 instances as they're scheduled to shut down. And our Lambda function will actually tell the ECS scheduler uh, to proactively reschedule all the tasks running on it onto another healthy host. Um, and what that lets us do is, is roll our clusters in large batches while still maintaining a level of safety, a guarantee that we're not going to, to tear down all of the hosts that are running some particular service and cause some downtime. Uh, another challenge we faced was sharing ECR registries. Um, you know, the, the, the first challenge was we wanted to make sure we had uh, ECR registries running in multiple regions for, for resiliency. Uh, the fix for that is actually really simple. You just, when you, when you Docker push, you just Docker push to every registry you want, you, you know, in every region you want to have your, your containers in. Uh, th you know, this allows you to weather a storm. If, if there's a problem in one region, you can fail all of your services over. Uh, you can fail your deploy, your deploy UI over uh, to, to registry in another region. Um, a, a bigger challenge is one, one of the other things we're doing is we're moving, we're separating, starting to separate our ECS clusters into different AWS accounts. And it's, it's a bit trickier to share registries across AWS accounts. You have to manage uh, IAM permissions on, a, on like a per uh, ECR repository level. Uh, our, our fix for that, again, is, is, is a really simple one, which is every time we push, we simply check permissions and update them as necessary. Uh, a more sophisticated solution here would be use a Lambda function, watch for new uh, repositories to be created, and set, up, set permissions dynamically. Um, and, and sort of the last big challenge we faced is one of efficiency. Uh, moving, a, moving away from sort of managing individual EC2 instances for individual applications onto a, onto a, a sort of cloud of compute resources where we're scheduling many applications side by side is obviously a big win in efficiency, but there are still improvements we can make. Uh, and, and the real challenge here is, is reservation versus utilization. You can see here uh, the, the orange line is, or the top line is uh, reservation, the, the bottom line is utilization. And you can see there's a, a big gap here. Um, and that's, and that's, that's money we're, we're kind of wasting, uh, but it also affects the, sort of our ability to, to accurately scale the cluster up and down uh, for demand. Um, and and sort of one of the challenges was our, our first approach at auto-scaling this was based on either uh, the memory or CPU reservation uh, CloudWatch metric. And uh, you know, the problem with that was scaling on either one of them independently is you run into dead bands where uh, you know, the CPU metric is telling you to scale up, the memory metric is telling you to stay put, so you don't scale at all. Um, our, our solution to that is, was to create a, a custom combined CloudWatch metric uh, that would, uh, you know, and, and we scale based on that. And we're still tuning the, the, the math on how we combine those metrics, uh, but we've gotten much more accurate in terms of how we scale our clusters up and down. Uh, the other big benefit that we've gotten is moving from elastic load balancers to application load balancers, uh, which actually allow you to co-locate your services even more on on hosts, along with task placement, uh, bin packing, and spreading across regions allow us to get much better utilization. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the, I'll, I'll talk sort of very briefly about the things that we're excited about coming up next. Uh, Elastic Network interfaces have, have landed and they're available. Uh, and what that enables is, is it enables you to apply sort of network level access control on a, on a per uh, ECS task basis. 
So what that'll let us do is do away with most of our class host groups and instead focus in you know, just on individual uh, services. We'll be able to have a, a security group attached to them that only allow that service access to a particular data store or S3 bucket or, or anything like that. Um, and and this, is, this is available now, uh, and it's, so it's very exciting for us. Um, the next big thing is we need to embrace uh, IAM roles for tasks. This has been away, available for a little while, um, where, where an individual ECS task uh, can just use the IAM infrastructure to automatically assume a role and get credentials, uh, and, and that'll allow us to eliminate a whole class of secret stores that we currently have to deal with um, and, and, and really reduce our, our sort of security service area. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's sort of how, where, where we got with, with, uh, with, with ECS, building a platform on top of ECS. Uh, again, I'm, I'm Will McCutcheon from, from BuzzFeed. Uh, and I think we have you know, about 10 minutes left. More like one minute left. OK. Well, if, if, you know, Pierre and I will stick around. If anybody has any questions or wants to tell us what we did wrong, you know, we'll, we'll hang out up front. Uh, come, come talk to us, please. Thank you.